again. Good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. I just want to let you know that it is uh, wonderful to see you all here this morning. It, is, it means a lot to us that you would uh, take time to come and join us and, and be part of this family as we seek and engage with God. Uh, I want to thank all of you listening on the, the live stream and also those of you who will listen later on in the week in the podcast. Uh, thank you for being present with us in ways that... Uh, in the past, we didn't even think were possible. So, um, yeah, let's, uh, will you please join me as I pray? Dear God, I give you uh, great thanks that, that we read in the Old Testament verses in Isaiah where it says, um, come, come and reason with me, says the Lord. Come and sit with me. And though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Your invitation, God, is for us to come and sit with you. And somehow you, who created all things, can say, and reason with me. That that you invite us not just to to come and sit and be lectured or talked to or whatever, but you invite us to come and say, reason with me. Bring your, your best arguments. Bring all your stuff. You and I together will work this out. I give you great thanks for that, God, that you would dignify us in such a way so I offer thanks to you ask that in that space we would come to you with hearts and minds open to hear and discuss and engage with you I ask this in the name of Jesus amen Um, when I uh, was growing up one of my favorite things and I've told you lots of stories about my grandparents house um but one of my favorite things was to go and work uh, at my grandparents' house. Uh, when, my, when my grandfather was alive, it was a little different because he, he was a hard worker, and, and we worked really hard, and that was fun too. Um, but my grandmother had, uh, she had a different take on work that my brother and I and all my cousins really enjoyed, uh, which meant we would show up at 9, and she would say, it's so early. Why are you here so early? Come on inside and have some breakfast. We've already had breakfast, Grandma. Oh, pff, you have not had breakfast yet. Come in and eat, and there'll be tea and cookies and pastries and eggs and all kinds, potatoes, all kinds of stuff. And then we'd eat, and she'd say, well, you just ate, so let's not go out and work just yet. Let's wait a few minutes, and, and, and oh, yes, Grandma, we'll wait. And so then at around, you know, 10.30, we'd go out and start working, um, Around noon, she'd come out and say, it's lunchtime. And we'd be like, okay, Grandma, I don't know. And, you know, somewhere she had like a roast and some other food, and she'd cut and make these huge sandwiches, and then she'd say, oh, sit for a minute, right? Just relax. You've been working so hard, uh, which <laughs> we hadn't. Um, you know, and then after that, we'd go back out and work a little more, and then she'd say, you've been working so hard. Come in and have supper right, at like 3.30 or 4, and it was always like this huge plate of pasta and some fresh bread, and oh, so good, right, and so that was working, uh, especially for my grandmother, and one of the things that always amazed me is I was always like, do you just have a roast sitting in your refrigerator somewhere, like waiting for these moments, and it turns out she did, right, she was always thinking about what if someone shows up, 
What if I have company? What if someone comes over and, and someone shows up? And I remember even my parents, there, there were times when I would bring my friends over uh, after school or if it was the, some people on the football team or the swim team or whatever, we'd come over to my house and my mom would be like, awesome. And here she'd pull out this huge bowl of turkey soup or some big meal that she just had somewhere sitting there. It wasn't like she made it all from scratch, but it was somehow ready instantly and, and for us to go. And if you know uh, teenage boys, it didn't have to be anything that spectacular. It could have just been some kind of food on a plate. And we would have, but you know, it was this really nice meal and all this stuff. And it didn't matter who it was, whether it was in college, I'd bring someone by the house. Hey, going to drop this person off at home, thought we'd stop by. Awesome, let's pull out a meal, right? Somewhere there was always food ready for whoever came by. Um, and I was going to show this clip from this comedian, but to be honest, um, I, I watched some other stuff by this comedian, and I didn't, I didn't enjoy it, and so I didn't feel comfortable. But he talked about the difference between company showing up 20 years ago and today, and it was much like I was describing with my grandmother and my family that anyone could show up, and you'd be happy to see them. But now if someone shows up, you're suspicious. Like, who is that? Like, and, and you don't go to the door. You're, like, hiding behind things and trying to figure out, like, oh, should I go? I don't know. I didn't invite anybody. And it's changed a little bit these days. And I want that, just that idea of what it means to be always invited, to, to always have space for someone, to always have uh, just the idea that we're going to be ready for people to show up. I want that to kind of just be in our, in our hearts and minds as we start talking about some stuff this morning. We're, we're in week two of our Lenten series called The Jesus Table, where we're exploring some of the times where we find Jesus sitting and eating with people. And the amazing things that happen out of those moments and what that tells us about who Jesus is, what the kingdom of God is like, and then how we should live off of those realities. Now, it is part of our Lent series, so I want to give you a quick sort of reminder about what Lent is. Because often we think Lent is this time where I give stuff up and I, and I, and I fast from things, and that's true. Uh, we often do that, but we often get caught up in that. See, Lent, the actual word that we translate Lent means springtime. And so this idea is the springtime of the church, and, and we liken it to a seed that's been planted in the dirt. And this, it's this time for preparation for new life that comes at Easter. And so we're in the dirt, and we're growing and churning. We're being nourished by the Holy Spirit that's moving, and we're shaping and growing and moving. And we break through the dirt on Easter, and we experience new life and light. And so Lent, though, is, is that time in the dirt. And it comes from when Jesus was in the desert. He went into the desert for 40 days where he was tempted by the devil as if being in the desert and fasting for 40 days wasn't difficult enough. He's tempted by the devil and endures that and then comes through that time and then he enters into his life of ministry. And so the, where we get the idea of fasting and stuff is that Jesus fasted during that time. And so our, it's our way of kind of identifying with Jesus. It's our way of kind of walking with him uh, in some kind of way and, and kind of remembering what he went through and what he did. And so that's where we get the fasting piece. But if we get too stuck on that fasting piece, we miss the part because we, we say, well, I'm going to give up uh, lunch one day a week or I'm going to give up Facebook or I'm going to give up TV. And then we don't do that and then we feel really guilty and we get really mad and we kind of throw the whole thing away. Um, but if we can get past that and realize it's, it's more about an opportunity to grow, it's more about an opportunity to engage with Jesus in this springtime uh, kind of idea of things, then uh, it, feels, it feels a lot different. Um, the other side of Lent is that when we give something up, like I'm going to give up Facebook, say, we like to have kind of a flip side to that, that I'm going to give up Facebook and instead I'm going to sit down with people and have a face-to-face -face 
conversation. Maybe I'm going to give up uh, a meal once a week and I'm going to go with some friends down to a soup kitchen and help out. So there's a way we kind of give up something, but we give to something. Um, Last week, Ben started us off with this amazing sermon, kind of introducing us to a new take on eating, right? So not just Jesus at the table, all that was in there, but, but this way of looking at eating and that uh, when we eat food, um, we are sort of spanning the history of creation, that in the garden before the fall of humanity, people were eating, right? During our lives right now in the present, people are eating. And in the time after Jesus comes back and God remakes heaven and earth, reconciles and redeems all things, there is a feast. And so people are eating. And so not only is eating this shared experience by all of humanity, one of the great things about eating is it sort of levels the playing field. When we sit at the table, all of us have the same need to eat. But sort of encapsulated in that too is this ability to to bring the past and the future kind of into the present. And I'm going to acknowledge the past, that we came from a place in the beginning before the fall of humanity, and we were eating. I'm acknowledging the present. This is our present life right now, and I'm eating. And in the future, we're going to be eating. So every time I sit down now, it is this sacred moment that pulls all that stuff together along with this shared reality that's something we all need to do. So when we sit at the table, we all come in in the same space. And so this morning, we're moving from that, and we're going to take a look at this time at the end of Jesus' life, where he's sitting with a group of his friends, his closest friends and followers, and he's having a meal with them. Uh, and so if you have your Bible, uh, you can turn to Luke 22, 14 through 30. If you don't have it, it's going to be up on the screen behind me, uh, so you can read along there. I do want to let you know inside your bulletin, there's a space for you to jot down notes or draw pictures or whatever helps you stay engaged with what we're going through this morning. So this is Luke 22, uh, uh, verses 14 through 30. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table." The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we start with Jesus and his, and his disciples at the Passover feast. They've spent time getting things 
prepared, getting food and gathering stuff and getting things set up. And this is a big deal because it's not just dinner together. It's Passover. This is a national Jewish festival holiday that celebrates this moment when God spared them. Because way back in the Old Testament, in Genesis, we find Israel in this moment of time where they are uh, enslaved and oppressed by Egypt. And God and Pharaoh, God through Moses and Pharaoh, kind of have this back and forth battle where Pharaoh's heart keeps hardening towards God. And God's saying, Moses is uh, going to Pharaoh and saying, look, I just my people, we want to go and worship. Uh, and Pharaoh's saying, no, no, can't go do that. And his heart hardens, and then God moves and does some things, and there's some plagues that go back and forth, and they're really not nice. But it's all this movement to get Pharaoh to release Israel to go and worship. And it finally gets to this point where God says, look, I've been trying to get you to, to do this, Pharaoh, and you're not listening. And he's speaking through Moses. And so he says, I'm going to send uh, an angel. An angel of death is going to come, and is going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. And... Israel is going to be spared from this if they take the blood of a lamb and paint it on the doorpost on their door. And so when this angel of death comes, it'll pass over or pass by those homes that have the lamb's blood on the door and not kill the firstborn in any of those houses. And so God passes over those homes, and so is named Passover. So again, this isn't just any meal. This is this time where they remember that God provided a way for them to remain. So Jesus says, in this meal, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So not only is it Passover, but it's this time where Jesus says, I want to be with you, my friends. Because this is the last time I'm going to eat this meal before I suffer. And so who do I want to be with? I want to be with my friends. So imagine if you knew that... You know, Christmas, the upcoming Christmas is going to be the last one you got to spend with your friends. Maybe you're traveling or something like that, or maybe you know this is the end of my time. You're sitting with your family, and so that changes the tone of that for you. But then imagine in the midst of that, you say to your family and friends, hey, I've wanted to have this time with you because this is the last time we're going to get to be together this way. Now that changes the tone for everyone. And so Jesus is saying, I want the company of my friends in this last moment before I go on to suffer. I want it with you, my friends. So this is all the tone of this meal. And so Jesus begins to proceed with the Passover feast. And he, give th he gives thanks and then passes around the wine. says, divide it up amongst everyone because I won't have this again until the kingdom comes. He breaks the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Passes it around. And then he takes the cup again and says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It's all this language of how, how Jesus has come and served. I've, my body's been given for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. You might be wondering why there's two cups mentioned here. If you've ever had the privilege of participating in a Jewish Passover meal or Seder meal, you know that there are lots of cups that get passed around. And so this is just an example of Jesus practicing his cultural and religious heritage uh, in, in the Passover meal. So then he says something that's really interesting. He says, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is, on, is with mine on the table. Let me get to the right one. 
Uh, but the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question amongst themselves which of them it would be who would do this. And so the discussion turns to who's the one who could betray Jesus, right? We know because we live in the future that this is Judas Iscariot who's going to report Jesus to the authorities that are plotting to kill him, and it's going to lead to Jesus being arrested, tried, and executed. So we know at this table there's at least one betrayer. And Jesus has not told anyone to leave. The disciples are talking about this, asking who, who could do something like this? Because in their minds, at least 11 of them are thinking, because it certainly wouldn't be me. I couldn't do something like that. And so the, the conversation then shifts from who is the worst to, to who is the best. And we can all understand how this might happen. If you're talking about, well, who would it be that could be the worst? And all of a sudden someone's like, well, you know, say someone pointed at me. And I might say, uh, no, I could never do that. I mean, in fact, uh, we all know I wouldn't do that. I, you might say I'm one of Jesus' closest followers. I mean, I've, I've healed people. I've gone with him wherever he's gone, into the presence of demon-possessed people. I, I've been there when the person was lowered through the roof. Look at how much I've given to Jesus. I gave up my career. I, I'm not saying I'm the best in the group, but some might say that. But I'm going to at least be in the top three. So the conversation shifts from who's the worst, who's the betrayer, to who's the best. This is not a new conversation amongst this group. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have moments in this story where the disciples are arguing with one another over who's the greatest. Matthew has three of them. And Mark has this one retelling where it's obvious the disciples know Jesus is not cool with this. This is in Mark 9, 33 through 35. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, he being Jesus, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So here's a moment. The disciples, Jesus asked, what are you arguing about? And they're like, uh, nothing. What are you saying? I don't know. It's, you know. Seahawks or, you know, whatever it was. Because they weren't going to tell him we were arguing about who's the greatest because they already know what he's going to say. And then he says it anyways. Not a new argument. Okay? This guy, Joel Green, says this. Although Luke presents what may appear to be a new topic of conversation, in fact, little has supposed to be changed as the scene at the table unfolds into this interchange among those gathered with Jesus at the Passover table. In verse 23, they had inquired amongst themselves which of them would betray Jesus. Now they inquire which of them was the greatest. And although one of the twelve will betray Jesus, Luke suggests in this ironic way that all twelve of them betray his basic kingdom message with its immediate implications for issues of status and position. Joel Morris says the dispute may seem out of place just after Jesus' interpretive words at the Passover feast in 15 through 20. But the great shock may be that the disciples thus present themselves as persons so out of step with Jesus' overall teaching. If in contracting with the chief priests and legal experts, Judas has positioned himself over against the divine projects, then so do the apostles as they squabble over relative position. Hmm. And so... If Jesus' prophecy concerning the inclusion of his betrayer says, yep, 
the betrayer's here, that person's right here at this table, and I'm not going to, you know, they don't have to leave, they're still welcome here. If that seems stunning, so too is the behavior of the others gathered around the table. That Jesus' entire presentation about what he's come to do, the very nature of who he is, my body given for you, my blood, this new covenant, seems to have fallen on deaf ears. Jesus has at his table all betrayers. Maybe not in the same way, but all in their hearts have somehow denied him, turned against him. Jesus doesn't say, you can't be here with me. Even though in this moment you are so far away from who you were created to be and doing what you are meant to be doing. There's a painting by this artist put up on the screen named Paolo Veronese. It's called The Feast in the House of Levi. Um, and it has, I don't know how well you can see that. Can we get the lights, maybe? So, in the very middle, you've got Jesus in kind of this blue, red shirt with a blue cape. Very Superman-style cape. Um, and then, you've got all these people scattered around. But what I want you to notice is that, so, the way rooms were defined in, in the way this painting is set up, it's not enclosed by four walls. It's just kind of this space that's enclosed. And so the people that you see on the steps and kind of in the forefront, they're considered not to be in the room. Like where the dog's at in the very middle front, just, just to the right of Jesus, that's considered out of that room. Okay? Everyone else who's sitting at the table, though, they're all considered to be guests at this feast. Um, and so... Uh, this guy painted this, um, but the painting was not originally called the, the Feast at the House of Levi. It was originally called the Last Supper. After seeing it, though, the church led this inquisition of the artist using words like heresy and highly offensive, uh, and they asked him why the painting contained, in quotes, buffoons, drunken Germans, dwarfs, and other such scurrilities, um, as well as extravagant clothing and settings. Uh, in what was indeed a fantasy version of a Venetian patrician feast. The artist responded by saying, well, why couldn't those characters have been present outside the room where Jesus was meeting? After further pressing, though, he stated that he had not thought that what he had done would cause so much commotion, and the church agreed that he could avoid the charges against him if he changed the painting, and they gave him three months to do it. And so he thought about it, didn't change a single thing in the painting, but changed the name to the Feast at the House of Levi, which is still an episode in the Gospel, but the church said it was less doctrinally centered and one in which the, gos- the Gospel specified that sinners were present. And after this, no more was said. Now, I bring this up to say, and if we can have the lights back on, that we have sanitized Jesus and the Jesus table. First off, I want to point out that of all the things in this painting that the church could have noticed wrong, they miss absolutely that just about everyone in this painting, and certainly Jesus, is not the right color. Right? It should have been much more brown. But when we read the story, we realize everyone at the table of Jesus is a sinner. 
every single person present at that table in this moment that we're reading about the Last Supper is acting and living in ways that are absolutely contrary to not only what Jesus has taught, but everything that he is. But we turn Jesus into a person who can't be touched by sinners, who can't be touched by those that society, culture, and the church look down upon. And at the same time, we all say, yeah, but, but Jesus is there for everyone. He's available for everyone who would turn to him, anyone who would venture in his direction. Jesus is waiting. I stand at the door and knock. And it all sounds good. But I want to ask us, how is Christ present in the world today? His physical body is not here in the way it used to be. Because the church is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the lead and the lifeblood of that body. So when we as the body of Christ tell people through our words and our actions that they're not able to be present at the Jesus table, that we don't welcome the betrayers and the sinners, then we discover we ourselves could not be at the table. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood with me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, I want us to notice, first of all, Jesus does, never says you shouldn't be a leader or in a position of authority. He just says there's a way to do it. He says others lord their authority over people. They flaunt it kings of the Gentiles, and these people who call themselves benefactors, but you are not like that. And if we jump back or jump ahead to the book of John, one of the other gospels in chapter 17, we have in the middle of this Last Supper this story about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He becomes the servant at the table, and not just any servant, but the lowliest of servants with the lowliest of jobs, scrubbing, cleaning the guests' feet. And Jesus says, you're to do the same for one another. And so Jesus gives this example of being a servant. But I want us to notice, Jesus doesn't just talk about being a servant. He doesn't say we should simply act like a servant. And he doesn't just act like a servant. Jesus becomes and is the servant. And it's a really important distinction for us to remember. The difference between acting like something and being or becoming something. Jesus just doesn't take the role of a servant. He is the servant. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one through whom and by whom all things were created. And the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. The Trinity is present in him. He is the salvation of humanity in all creation. And he does not just put on a costume of being a servant. He is a servant. A verse we've been looking at a lot lately, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Not he acted poor, he became poor, so that you through his poverty 
might become rich. It's a critical aspect of Jesus' nature for us to understand he is not an actor. Jesus isn't putting on the costume of the poor. He's not putting on the costume of humanity or the costume of a servant. Jesus, we read in the scripture, became a human being, was born as one of us, so that we could have a high priest and a king who understands not only what it means to be human in order so he can sympathize with us, which is what the book of Hebrews says, but also so that he could experience what it means to overcome all the things that we struggle with so he can provide help. He can provide assistance as we're trying to overcome those things. Jesus became poor as he gave up all the things that were his, that made him rich as a member of the Trinity. His status and all the benefits that come along with that. The one by whom and all things were created for. And he gives those up and becomes poor so that others could become rich. So that others could be a co-heir with him. And we could all share in what belongs exclusively to Jesus. Jesus becomes a servant in that he came not to condemn but to seek and save the lost. Or as Jesus himself says... In the book of Matthew 20, 28, that the Son of Man did not, come to serve, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, who are we giving our life for? Individually and as a gathered people, who are we giving our life for? I want to kind of wrap things up, but uh, the worship team and, and the prayer team, if you, if you could come up. Um, and in a moment, we're going to enter some more music. And if you want prayer for stuff either to get prayed for earlier or stuff that's come up during uh, our time in the Word, uh, they're there for you. We've had this Lenten challenge that, that we started where it's, uh, we want to challenge, people to, to challenge people to have a meal with someone once a week throughout Lent. We're talking about this idea of the Jesus table, so let's practice it. Let's, let's make that happen. This could be someone over to your house or someone over lunch or whatever. But I want to add a little spin on it. Now, I, well, I'll explain it as I go. So I want you, sometime during this Lenten season, to have a meal with someone that, uh, that you don't like. Someone who irritates you. Someone who's annoying. Someone who's hard to work with. So it could be at your office, the person who, oh, I just I can't get along with them or whatever right? I want you to find this person. It could be a family member who you haven't talked to in a while or something like that, and I want you to have a meal with them. Now, I say during Lent because I don't want us to think that if someone calls us this week that they hate us, right? Or that they're really annoyed with us, like, why are you calling me this week, right? So just during Lent sometime, and so don't, and please don't assume if someone calls you that it's because they don't like you and they, they're <laughs> acting this out. Uh, but um, now, um, and, and I want you not just to, to have lunch with them, but I want you to serve them. So in some way, I want you to serve them, whether that's you're going to pay for their meal or you're going to serve them by, by giving them your attention and listening. Let them direct and guide the conversation. And you being present in a way that you're honoring them as a human being, an image bearer of God. Because notice at the end of this what one of the things that Jesus says. He says, I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred on me. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, including Judas and the rest of the betrayers in this moment. 
Jesus says that faithfulness is what I'm interested in. You've stayed with me. You could have left. You still can. One of you will. But it's faithfulness that Jesus is looking for. Even in this moment where they're acting so contrary to who Jesus is, his very nature as a servant, he says, I confer on you a kingdom just as my father did me. And so it's faithfulness to Jesus is what he's interested in. Stay with me. You've stood by me. Because in order to follow Jesus, you have to stay with him. Jesus moves around a lot. You've got to stick with him. And when you do, you find yourself dining with thieves, hanging out with demon-possessed people, supping with tax collectors and sinners. You find yourself being anointed by prostitutes, caring for beggars, and touching lepers. Because just as Jesus came and sat and ate and made us the center and God invites us to his table and says come and reason with me we're called to go and do the same and so there's two responses I want to I want us to think about one is is that idea of having a meal with someone right but the other one is maybe you've been labeled someone who doesn't belong maybe you've been told in some way there's no room for you at the table There's no spot for you, or maybe that's a label you've put on yourself, or maybe it's one that that other people have put on you, but you believe I'm the betrayer, and there's no way I could sit at the table with Jesus. I want you to know today that is not true. There's no one who cannot sit at the table of Jesus. Even when Judas betrayed him, Jesus says, friend. He identifies him as friend, not acquaintance, but friend, good friend. Still an opportunity for you. So please hear that no matter what anyone else has told you, Jesus says, you're invited. You're not just welcome. I have sought you out, and you are invited to come and sit at my table. Let's pray. God, I give you great thanks. First off, that you invite us you say come and sit with me come and sit with me I pray for those of us who have been told in some way or another that we can't do that whether it's it's at some other table or we've heard it and we feel like it's from your table God I pray that we would know there's not just space for us at your table but there's space that you have made and you've sought us out. I pray that we know what it means to be beloved. And I also pray, Jesus, that you would help us in those times where we're sitting at the table and maybe not living in the way that you've intended. Maybe not walking in the invitation that you've given us to walk in the ways that you do. I pray we would hear this moment that we are welcome and invited at your table and that we're welcome and invited to press through into new life, into something new. And so I pray we would go and we would find the people that everyone else is saying, you don't belong. And we would invite them to come and sit at our table and belong. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.